Welcome to Women's Focus. I'm Carol Boss. Hang out with me this afternoon. Conversations today with four very interesting women. I've talked to so many women on this show, so many different conversations with topics all over the map. One topic that has been brought up in conversation on Women's Focus, but I never focused on per se, is COVID-19. In April, I brought together by computer some very fine Albuquerque poets to read their work and talk about poetry when it's needed most. That is reading and writing and talking about the need for and the power of words in this time of a pandemic. More recently, I've thought about inviting a medical person who can engage in conversation about some of the subjects that have created oh, so-called oppositional sides and stances. I wanted to have someone not in government or politics to talk about this virus which continues to strike so many people in our state. Actually, I dreamed of having an epidemiologist on the phone, and guess what? She's on the telephone right now. Dr. Megan Brett specializes in internal medicine, and she is an assistant professor in infectious diseases and the hospital epidemiologist at UNM Hospitals. Dr. Megan Breck, welcome. Thank I know you, you so much. I know you are really busy and appreciate you taking time to um, talk with me today. You're so welcome. This is such an important topic, so thank you for having me. For those who are unsure, tell us what an epidemiologist does. Sure. So I'll give a little bit of background is that I'm, I'm an infectious diseases doctor and I actually also um, work on epidemiology, which means that I'm interested in um, how diseases um, occur in people, and um, and then more importantly, also how to work on preventing diseases. And that could be anything from infections, which is my passion, uh, or that could be preventing things like diabetes in, in people as well. What brought you to um, get interested in epidemiology? I think I've always been interested in systems, and I've always been interested in preventing diseases. So uh, those two came very close together. I think uh, practicing medicine is great, but I also like taking a step back uh, and seeing the bigger context in which things occur. So how how is it that we're different than other countries in terms of our responses to many different things is, is always an interesting thing. And epidemiology helps compare and contrast, I would say. Mm-hmm. The numbers for those po testing positive in Bernalillo County in particular have been rising for a couple of weeks. How are things at UNM Hospital now in, in regards to the virus? That's a very general question. Yeah, I'm happy to answer that question. So I think you're exactly right that the, the numbers have been increasing in Bernalillo County, and that's different than in weeks prior or months prior. Um, before, um, counties like San Juan and McKinley County had much higher rates, but now, um, now since I live here in Albuquerque, that um, the rates have increased here locally, and that and that's certainly concerning. And so, in turn, I'd say that um, UNM is faring well. I think some of the challenges are that we had actually had many patients in our hospital who had COVID infection. Um, and that actually number started to decrease. Uh, but recently in the past week, I'd say that we've seen some of those numbers starting to increase. Mm -hmm. I know epidemiologists do a lot of analyzing. So I was wondering, have you been analyzing, analyzing what's causing these outbreaks? 
Well, I think, so I, um, as the epidemiologist for the hospital, my responsibility really is within the hospital itself. Um, but I do take time to reflect on what's happening um, in Bernalillo County and the state beyond because UNM serves the entire state. Um, and so it's important to kind of know what's happening within the hospital in addition to what's happening in the state because they obviously reflect each other. What I would say is that I've I've certainly looked at some of the trends within the hospital. And again, it's helpful to know how many people who have COVID infection are in our hospital and then working on trying to figure out the best way to keep people safe while they're working in our hospital. Uh, but also the broader trends of who we're trying to, you know, connecting with uh, the Department of Health, for example, to help with things like contact tracing. Um, and, um, and I would say, you know, reporting that so that further contact tracing could get done. So I've done some analysis and it's more at the moment visual data displays that's really helpful to kind of see the trends. And as I mentioned, a lot of press has been given to say um, high rates of infection in McKinley County and San Juan County. But if you look at the data as of late, uh, what that shows is uh, that the rates of infection in um, San Juan and McKinley County have gone down a great deal. And now it's um, the rate of rise is pretty profound here in Bernalillo County. I'd love to eventually get to the to be able to say how many of those people who have tested positive are symptomatic versus asymptomatic, what age groups are getting tested, but I don't have access to the broader state level data. And again, I can predominantly speak to what's happening in the hospital itself. Right. So we have these public health orders. And is there a relationship that you see between either following the public health orders and what that results in or not following them and then what happens in terms of uh, increasing positive testing? Yeah, I think um, I think I've seen a few different implications for that in terms of whether the orders are followed or not. So one thing that I can say is that um, our state acted earlier than other states and so huge credit um, to the governor and um, other um, leaders in, in health uh, at the state level for um, asking for people to kind of stay at home early on. Um, and I can say that it certainly impacted our coronavirus infection rates. Um, what that did is that reduced the number of people who came into the hospital because the, the key thing there is that you don't want to overtax the, the healthcare system. There's only so many ventilators that we have. There's only so many hospital beds. And um, by people staying at home, what that did is that prevented the spread of infection so that a large portion of the population did not get infected all at once and therefore did not come to impact the healthcare system um, all at one time. So I think that was great. The other thing that those public health orders did is actually shortened our flu season by a month and a half, if not two months. Um, so the point is it impacted all respiratory viral illnesses like flu, such that our flu season was shorter too. And since then, you know, what's great is that we've been data-driven and um, kind of slowly opened things, which is, I think, great. But now that we're seeing a rise, I know that um, within the past two weeks, we actually slowed the rate of opening and, in fact, pulled back on some restrictions, which is, I know, hard from an economic perspective, but uh, simultaneously important from a 
from a health perspective. Yeah, I want to talk to you about that more now. We recently had a holiday, the 4th of July, which is one that doesn't exactly encourage people, the holiday itself, to, <laughs> to stay at home or be alone or with only a couple of people. Um, uh, 4th of July is like, let's get out there and do gatherings and picnics and fireworks. How did you react? This is the fourth, first 4th of July, first big holiday since the pandemic really began here. How do you react when you see scenes here and across the country of large gatherings? I don't mean necessarily publicly re- you know, react, but you yourself as a doctor, as an epidemiologist, when you see the large gatherings happening all over. So I think I'm, I, I remain concerned because those are great ways to have the infection continue to spread. Um, and I think something like 80% of the spread of infection relates to a very few number of big gatherings, if that makes sense. They're kind of referred to as super spreader events. Mm -hmm. And so those are great opportunities, even if one person shows up sick um, or, or actually even without symptoms, they can spread the infection to many other people. Um, And the problem with gathering in groups of people even if it's your family members, the challenge is that's a that's a great place for one person right. to spread the infection to many, many other people. And there and then it's incredibly hard to make sure that um, if one person does infect many others, how to inform the other people, right, that they may be infected and then stop the spread from, say, 15 to 20 other people. You know, when I saw videos and photos of the the protests in downtown Albuquerque, when I see these things happening all over the country, not judging protests or anything, but when I see these masses of people, which are still happening around the country, sometimes it has to do with um, the influence of, you know, people in government. It makes me kind of crazy because I sometimes I'll just say out loud to myself, do people not get it? Do they not get that viruses are contagious and that when somebody has a bad cold, if somebody has a flu, unless you're a family member, you don't want them going to work. You don't want them going to school. That doesn't always stop people. But I don't get what's not being understood. Well, so I think this is challenging because I think – uh, right, that I completely understand the motive, the motivations um, for people wanting to go out and do things like protest. I, I understand that. I understand wanting to celebrate for the Fourth of July. I completely understand um, the the background behind that. I think the the challenges, at least now, we're asking different behaviors out of everybody, and I know everybody wants things to be normal. Trust me, I, I certainly want things to be normal as well. Um, so I think kind of rethinking what our day-to-day actions are is, is incredibly hard. Behavior, be, changing our behaviors is, is difficult. And I think some of the other factors that probably contribute are the fact that this virus, um, anywhere between, it sounds like somewhere between 20, but up to 50% of people may not show symptoms at all. And so those people feel fine enough to go um, to go out, right? To go to restaurants, to go to mass gatherings, 
um, there's nothing st stopping them to do that because they feel fine. I think that's part of the challenge. The other thing is there's another group of people who actually start shedding virus. Um, so meaning that they're infectious, that they can spread the virus to other people um, probably two days before the symptoms start. So before people start having fever or cough, um, they're actually able to spread the infection. So again, there's nothing that is even a, a signal to people that they may have the infection. And so I think that's what's allowed this virus in particular to spread potentially um, the, the way that it has, if that makes sense. And so, again, I think those are the two biggest factors that concern me is that um, we're asking people to do things differently, that it's not a great time, um, particularly with the amount of spread that's going on, to um, go to to big parties because that contributes to the, the spread of infection further and that we're not going to get ahead of it. Uh, but then I think the other thing is that people don't so show signs and symptoms um, and that's either before they develop the infection or some people never show um, fever or cough or other things that would tell them that they actually have the infection. Right. This is Women's Focus at Turn Tune 2. My name is Carol Boss, and I'm talking with Dr. Megan Brett. She is the uh, hospital epidemiologist at UNM Hospitals, and I'm so glad that she has the opportunity to talk to us today. I think just a little bit ago, you were what you were saying really um, speaks to staying at home. And then, of course, we have our six-feet social distancing and wearing a mask and no dining in restaurants. And I want to talk a little bit about the effectiveness of that, and I also think you've touched on, you certainly have touched on the impact of not abiding by them. You know, I saw a um, letter to the editor this week in the journal, and there were a bunch of people reacting to the governor's orders to wear, specifically the governor's orders to wear a mask outside, even when exercising outside. And one person said he abides by the mask wearing uh, the mask wearing order, but can't understand it required for exercising outdoors, including hiking in the mountains where you're not going to run into that many people. Well, I was a few days ago in the Sandias with two friends. I wore my mask the whole time. It wasn't crowded, but the trail was narrow, and especially when it came to the heading back part, when we were turning around and heading back, ran into couples, groups a little larger, and saw some folks with masks, but also saw them without. And it was a trail with quite a few downed trees, so it was not easy to jump off the trail when you saw somebody coming. And it was awkward. I know one woman who I passed, the young woman, uh, she quickly put her mask which was maybe around her neck or she was holding it up against her face. So in those situations, you are up close and personal, can be up close and personal with people. So are you? would you say that you could be a proponent for wearing um, a mask when, when you are outdoors and when you're hiking? So I, what I would say is um, this is a this is a space where there's not a tremendous amount of data. The masks in general, you mean? Well, not the masks in general, but I would say certainly outdoor. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so this is part of the problem. But I think you highlighted right there with your story some of the issues 
um, of being outside and encountering other people and not being able to say, for example, get off the hiking trail, right? So I think right. you never know when you're going to encounter somebody else. Um, and if you maybe needed to stop and talk to somebody or if you needed to stop and help somebody, then um, then you're in a scenario where you may or may not have a mask in your pocket. Um, and you may or may not have time to put it on before you encounter the next person around the next bend of the hiking trail. So what I would say is um, I think the part of the challenge with masks in general is that there's some data, but there's not a tremendous amount of data um, about masks. Um, what I would say is the greatest amount of data is in healthcare settings. Um, there's some there and there's a, there's a scant amount, I would say, of mask wearing in the community setting. So hopefully some of that data will be generated just because of now of our experience of having to do this. So I think on some levels, the motivation for saying wear a mask while outside, or at least if I were to um, try and explain part of the order would may, it would probably relate to um, like the ability to find your mask, right? Um, in scenarios where you may encounter people. What's great is that a lot of people are getting outside but the downside to it is that you may encounter other people while on on hiking trails or biking trails or um, even outside walking. So I think it's important in those scenarios to wear masks. Mm -hmm. And in particular, when um, when in restaurants, um, I know that there have there has been one study done looking at um, all of the locations that have contributed to outbreaks, uh, I think we're over 300 were reviewed, and I think only only two or three were related to outdoor exposures. Um, so the point is that the frequency of those is probably low, but that doesn't mean that they never happen. Right. Another letter um, somebody said in, uh, a few days ago is that the governors should show, quote unquote, show proof that walking, jogging, hiking, et cetera, outdoors puts us at a risk, when in fact, you just, there, you said it very clearly, this is not much data on that, but it's certainly a precautionary um, order absolutely. On, on her part. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I think it's, um, again, I think it's more along the lines of preparedness, if that makes sense, and more along the lines of um not necessarily evidence-based, but if a lot of people have infections, you're not certain when you may encounter those people even while hiking. So for that reason alone, it's it's probably not unreasonable to to have a mask. Perhaps that would change if the data showed otherwise um, in terms of rates of spread of infection here in Bernalillo County. Right. You know, um, something I've been thinking about, I've heard people quite a few times who are asked why they're not wearing a mask or asked to move a few more feet ahead or behind so there's a decent distance. And they say, I'm okay. I tested, not everyone, this is I've run into this or heard of it. I'm okay. I tested negative a few weeks ago. So I've been wondering, someone can test negative today and truly be negative, but then in a few weeks, if they get tested again for whatever reason, they could certainly be positive because of a new exposure. Is that right? Exactly. And I think relying solely on testing uh, as a means to know whether you're infected or not is probably not perfect. I mean, it's it's probably one of the better uh, ways to determine that. At the same time, if 
there's a lot that can happen in a few weeks. So what I would say is what's true today may not be true in three weeks, particularly if you went to a large gathering on the 4th of July. Um, that's not relevant now, but if you went to a large gathering today, uh, then your test may be negative, but next week could very well be positive. So I think um, testing is helpful, but it is uh, not 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 always true. Um, so I think that's the other thing to kind of uh, keep in mind is that uh, what's true today will may not be true in, in three weeks. Right. And I think that's all the more to indicate why the precautions are so important. Correct. Correct. And I think that's why doing everything that we're trying to do, um, meaning with, you know, limiting gatherings, social distancing, wearing masks, all of those are steps to help reduce the risk. None of them is perfect in their own right, uh, if that makes sense. But they're all different measures that are kind of grouped together. And that's a that's a pretty common thing that we do when talking about infection control is that we group things together. Each in themselves may not be super powerful, but when grouped together, it does help reduce the risk of infection and spreading the infection in particular. What about indoor dining, which has turned out to be a really controversial, unfortunately, political kind of issue in this state and probably elsewhere? So I think about indoor dining. Masks are off. Maybe they they put the table six feet apart, but you're with a couple of people. Are you really six feet apart when you're sitting together eating? You're talking. You're laughing. Right, you've you've hit on you've hit on all the things that are concerning, right? Yeah. How far can those droplets spread? I used to call them those damn droplets. <laughs> oh, I totally get that. So you're right. People are not um, when you're eating, you can't wear a mask. Uh, masks have not been designed to do that, as far as I can tell. Um, so that's one thing that will allow things like droplets to be generated from people's mouths, or if they sneeze, you know, certainly from their 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 nose as well, and what I would say is that how long droplets stay in the air, um, this has been another thing that's been, I would say, hotly contested in the, in the literature. And, you know, time is needed to get better data. But droplets um, can either be kind of bigger in size, um, but those can be repelled, for example, when somebody sneezes up to 27 feet. So six feet works for general things, but if somebody sneezes, Hmm. then that may not work. Um, And then the other thing that keeps getting discussed is whether the virus is airborne or not. Um, And what I would say is that there's some evidence for um, when people uh, probably cough a great deal, potentially even talk, um, potentially sing. Um, Those are things that can have a different kind of droplet that can stay in the air for a little bit longer. Um, And how long those stay in the air depends on many things. It depends on humidity. It depends on um, how well ventilated the spaces are. Um, And for each scenario, it's really hard to get specific, but I would say the less ventilated um, then that poses issues, meaning that things can stay in the air for much longer. So the point is, that's why indoor dining may be a little bit more risky. Again, not perfect, 
um, because I can't tell you how much humidity is needed, for example, in order to make this, the space safer. But those, those small droplets can remain in the air for longer if the conditions are right. So if you're in a restaurant... Yeah, and that's what leads to spread, potentially. So, so if you, you're in a restaurant that has um, their cooler going with a fan on the ceiling, is that something that increases the danger? Because I keep thinking it'll move the droplets around. It, it, it may be helpful or it could be harmful, right? Because the other thing is that um, um, I know in healthcare settings, for example, we put in specific kinds of filters that help get teeny tiny particles. Um, so I, the, the challenge is that I'm not sure that anybody knows, right? Because, because um, it may be helpful to kind of increase ventilation and the amount of air flowing through a room at the same time that could, um, could lead to more propagation. And so th the challenge is that I'm not sure anybody has a clear idea. Um, and so things like outdoor um, seating may be better because there's UV, there may be wind, um, and all of that potentially reduces the risk relative to predicting what will happen in a given restaurant setting. Right. Um, what about gyms where people sweat all the time? I am reluctant to go back to my gym, which happens to be a very huge gym. And do you think they, they're safe? I think it has to do with their practices. And mine sent out an email saying they've put up more stations with wipes, and now the wipes are disinfectant. I didn't know what they were beforehand, but I didn't think they were not disinfectant. And one of the orders is to, when you work out, including indoors, so that's a gym kind of situation, people wear masks, and I'm sure it's really hard to do that. So... I'm reluctant to go back right now, and I don't know what would make me feel safe. So do you, do you have an opinion on that in terms of gyms and the, the, the environment there? So I think, I think um, and it's not just me, that, uh, that the amount of infection that is potentially spread by contacting surfaces, that doesn't appear to be a major way that the infection is transmitted. So for example, if you touch um, such a spot where somebody's coughed on it, um, it probably depends on when they coughed on it, uh, right? And, and then what you do with it, because if you go then touch your eye, then that's, that's a risk for potentially transmitting the infection. But that doesn't appear to be as great of a factor, if that makes sense, as... Um, as being close to somebody and having a more prolonged conversation with them, probably greater than 15 to 20 minutes without wearing masks. I think that probably posed the highest risk. So do I think that, um, the, that cleaning services is a good idea? Yes, absolutely. Um, but I don't think that's the predominant way that the infection gets spread, if that makes sense. Um, but I do think that's helpful again, just for, um, peace of mind in, on some levels for the next person to mm -hmm. uh, take over take over whatever um, exercise equipment that you do. I think the the bigger deal potentially could be mask wearing in those settings, right? And again, if that's mandated, then that would be great if if people could do that just based on the number of people that have infections right now here in Bernalillo County. And how masks help in that regard is that they actually. Um, they, they certainly protect you, but they protect the other people in that space. Um, and so if you are breathing more heavy, which I, uh, which I think happens during exercise, 
um, then that um, then that helps reduce the spread of infection from your mouth and nose to other individuals in that area. Um, so I, I would say that a lot of this has to do with um, how how risk averse people are, how how worried people are about getting the infection, and what they think their their consequences for getting the infection may be, if that makes sense. Um, because I also don't want to take away things like exercise, right, which helps with people's mental health. Um, so. I think probably working on trying to find times when fewer people are there, if they've done good things in terms of distancing machines, I think that's great. If they talk about cleaning, I think all of that is helpful. And I think even making sure that um, people are wearing masks, right, while exercising in indoor settings in particular, just because it's hard to predict um, what the virus will do in each one of those settings. I have a feeling that response will, will help some people figure it out, and that it actually not actually, it, it also really helps me too. Um, and what about the effectiveness, the importance of quarantining? Quarantining, I don't know, that sounds like a funny <laughs> word, about <laughs> being put in a situation where you quarantine. You know, yes. she, one of the orders, and I don't know how this is enforced, um, maybe more so at airports, but people from here leaving the state and then coming, crossing borders and then in, within states, let's say even, come back here, and so the order is to quarantine for two weeks. Right. So why why that um, where that comes from? So just to explain that, I'll, I'll just start off with the, the word itself is a little bit awkward, um, which is <laughs> fine. But but where it comes from is it's actually um, I think from Venice in Italy, believe it or not, where they used to have ships dock far outside of Venice. And people used to have to stay um, in a particular space for 40 days. So that's why it's, it sounds like um, uh, cuarenta, like 40 in Spanish, uh, because mm -hmm. people used to have to stay outside of the city for 14 days before they can come in because there was concern about infections being on ships. So that's where that comes from. Um, for us, this is a little bit different. We don't have to wait 40 days, thankfully. It's 14, which still still seems long. That comes from um, the likely incubation period or how long it may take for the virus to set up an infection in each person's body. So um, I would say about um, half, um, half of people will show signs and symptoms if they're going to by day five, and then probably 85% by day seven. Um, but it can take up to 14 days for people to have signs and symptoms of the infection. So that's where 14 days comes from. Um, and by staying at home for 14 days, then what you've done is you've, uh, if you've traveled somewhere, is that you've waited out the period, basically where the infection um, can show itself. So that's where the 14 days comes from. How well that's being enforced, I'm actually not, um, I'm not particularly clear. I know that uh, certainly we have guidance at UNM about travel and, um, and you know, that's balanced with the, the importance of also getting healthcare workers back to work. Um, so in general, travel is discouraged. Um, but at the same time, if people do travel, we kind of have to have to deal with that. There's, um, and I, and I think that's important because people also have important reasons to travel, say, if a family member 
um, is dying and they want to go see their their parent. I think, you know, I, I, I never want to stop things like that. At the same time, thinking about how and where we travel and why we travel. Uh, again, these are different times, so different different behaviors are are, are needed. And again, I would say why it's because coronavirus, we're not doing a great job in, in this country, I would argue, of controlling it. Um, to contrast that with places like Germany that have done, that actually had cases earlier than we did um, and have done a great job, I think, of of actually reducing the spread of the infection such that it's it's almost a non-issue in Germany, I would argue, at this point in time. What you just brought up is the next question I was going to ask you. Given the return to some normalcy in Europe, where things are being fairly well managed, it seems compared with increasing cases and more deaths here in the U.S., what are the top things those of us in New Mexico can do now? That doesn't mean repeating everything that we just talked about, but if there's something more that you want to say about it. I mean, it's horrific to see the differences between that country. And we talked about Italy to begin with and how they were, you know, the number of deaths that were happening there, but they got things under control. Are we right, able so I, to do that? Yeah, I, I sincerely, how do I put it? I think uh, the United States is an amazing place and we've we've stepped up so many times in the past. So I'm hoping that we will be able to do that again. Um, what I'm really still not clear about is why, um, why a virus that does exist that has been documented is still something that's questioned by people. Mm-hmm. And again, I, that's the part that concerns me most. Um, and it's hard when it becomes a belief as opposed to something that's based in fact and reason. Um, I do think that having a metered response to anything is, is a, a great approach. Um, but I think that uh, places like Germany have done a great job of not only um, having low death rates, because I think they've actually done things to protect, say, for instance, uh, skilled nursing facilities um, or nursing homes, because the people that are greater than 60 or 70 are, are at higher risk. So they've done a great job of kind of keeping those places protected um, uh, so that their death rate is lower. Um, but I, I would say that they've also done other things like um, not only having testing, but having intense contact tracing. Um, and so that what contact tracing is, is for every person that has an infection, you find out who they've been cl- close to, you know, for example, whether they were wearing a mask or not, um, and how many people they had contact with when they actually had the infection. Um, I think Germany has also done a great job in having testing that's free, um, and widely available. Um, I think New Mexico has done a great job with that. Um, But I would say that the places where we're doing the testing um, is still focused in healthcare facilities. So I would argue that what would be great is to have that more widely available in places that don't merely just impact healthcare facilities so that people can get tested um, based on exposure. Um, so I would say not just testing for the sake of testing, but testing in the setting of exposure is most meaningful, um, but not have it burden healthcare facilities as well, just because uh, I know that we're trying to do normal everyday function, if that makes sense. We're trying to take care of people who come in with strokes and who've been in car accidents and who come in with other types of infections and 
um, it'd be great to kind of have testing more widely available in non-healthcare sites. Um, and again, the contact tracing to make sure that every person that someone with an infection is, has had contact with knows that they need to stay at home for 14 days uh, and or get tested if they, if they develop symptoms. Um, so I think there's a lot of lessons learned, honestly, from other countries. Um, I know that's hard to hear uh, because I think we have been leaders in the past, but I'm not clear that um, how we're handling this at this point in time um, puts us in the forefront. I would say that we're at the moment scrambling to catch up. If you're tuning in now, um, you're listening to Women's Focus. I'm Carol Voss. My guest is Dr. Megan Brett, who is a hospital epidemiologist at UNM Hospitals. And you are a medical doctor. An epidemiologist is a medical scientist. Correct. And again, it's about the study of diseases and how they impact populations. Um, Physicians more often have a tendency, and it's appropriate, to focus on individual patients um, and advocate for individual patients. That That is great. But the but then you also, at times, and I think what inspired me to, to pursue epidemiology is kind of getting a bigger, broader picture of what's happening to the population as well. Um, and so that's what uh, epidemiology is. It's, it's, again, more like the study of um, diseases in people and things like risk factors um, and figuring out how, who's getting impacted and how. And then what I like is sort of interventional epidemiology, which means that um, it's good to know what populations are impacted, but then how can you, um, uh, I guess you as a scientist, so to speak, then go do, um, do interventions to help reduce that risk of infection in those populations? What, what are smart ways to, to reduce the, the risk? What's interesting about mask wearing is that their cloth masks do have some impact. It actually helps, again, protect you from other people, but most importantly, it protects other people from you. Um, And so I think if we, you know, continue to live in communities, um, and I know that we're kind of a little bit more um, getting away from social gatherings, I get that just based on the nature of how things are at the moment. Um, uh, But I think if we are going to continue to be in a community episodically, which will happen if you go to the grocery store or anything else, then the mask is as important for you as it is for protecting other people. And I think if you have regard for other people and other citizens of the world, then I would ask that people wear a mask because You know, it's true. You may be fine in the setting of an infection, but if somebody is 70 or 80 and you expose them, the odds that they will have higher, um, higher consequences for that infection, uh, you know, including hospital stay, um, uh, even ICU, like intensive care unit stays, ventilators, or even death is much, much higher. So again, it's not just about you. It is about, it's about the community as a whole. Um, and so to me, um, if you have, what I would ask is if people have concerns for other human beings, then, then a mask does as much for you as it would for somebody else. That's a great way to end, except for one question outside of the hospital. Do you wear a mask? I do. I do. Um, 
and I do um, when, and, and that's, it's, it's going to be a new practice, honestly, for me to wear that while outside and hiking. But I think um, to uh, follow through um, and work to comply um, with the governor's order for the sake of reducing the risk of infection. Yes. Yes. So I will, I, I would say that it's a, it's going to be a new habit for me. Um, so have I been a hundred percent successful? No, but it's something that I'm going to continue to work towards, which is again, for the sake of protecting everybody else, wearing a mask when outside um, and while hiking and doing things up in the mountains. I think that's incredibly important. That's breaking news. You heard it here first. Dr. Megan Brett <laughs> is vowing to wear her mask when she's outdoors more and more. Thank you, um, Dr. Brett, for being with me today. I so wanted to have this conversation. I so wanted to talk to an epidemiologist, and I'm really happy and um, grateful that you had the time to do that. Well, thanks again for the invitation. I really appreciate it. Um, and. I hope everybody continues to do what they can to keep themselves and everybody else safe. Okay, very good. Thank you. Thanks. I have the good fortune to talk to writer Heather Lendy, L-E-N-D-E, today. And actually, until a few weeks ago, I wasn't familiar with Heather and her work. I was asked if I wanted to interview her, so I read about her and her books, which include the New York Times bestseller, If You Lived Here, I'd Know Your Name, and her brand new book, published in June, of Bears and Ballots, an Alaskan Adventure in Small Town Politics. After reading about the new book, I right away contacted Heather's publicist and said, yes, I want to interview her. I'm very glad to introduce you to Heather Lendy today. She has contributed essays and commentary to NPR, the New York Times, the National Geographic Traveler, among other newspapers and magazines, a columnist, too, for the Alaska Dispatch News, and she's the obituary writer for the Chilkat Valley News in Haines, Alaska, where she lives with her husband, Chip, and beautiful dogs. I saw a picture of the dogs online, and they are very beautiful. I welcome you to Women's Focus, Heather Lendy. Thanks for taking the time to talk to me. Oh, thank you for having me. I, I was laughing because my dogs are, I just took them for a walk, and, and right now they're just all wet. And, and I, you might hear them bark at some point if somebody goes by on the beach in front of my house. Mm-hmm. So I know you and your husband have lived in Haines, it, it's, I think, for most of your lives, actually. I think you moved there when you were in your 20s? Yes. Yep, I've lived, I'm 61, and I came to Haines when I was 24, Alaska when I was 23. I guess before we got to here, we were up in Anchorage for a little bit. Well, I was going to ask you what drew you to Alaska. I didn't realize you were in um, another city at first, but what did you, what first drew you to Anchorage and and to Haines? Did you ever think that was going to wind up being your hometown? Uh, no. no. Uh, what happened was um, I met my husband in college in Vermont. I grew up on Long Island, New York, and, and he was from Massachusetts. And um, uh, after he graduated a year ahead of me and went on to graduate school in forestry, and um, then I graduated from Middlebury. He was done with his forestry school, and we got married when I was 22. And um, we, I guess we didn't want to be just like our parents and suddenly be like adults like that and so we bought a pickup truck and drove to Alaska because he wanted to go where big trees were and um, we ended up in Anchorage because we needed to find some work in small town Alaska that was pretty much impossible but then uh, shortly afterwards 
we came down to Haynes because he uh, got a job with a sawmill here that uh, ended up like all the mills in southeast Alaska. We were very end of the timber industry. So um, at that point, uh, we stayed and made a life here um, with a, uh, a small uh, retail lumberyard and hardware store is what uh, my husband does. And um, I pretty much raised the kids and wrote about life here. Yeah, you wrote about life. And so I bet his store is the hardware store in town. There's actually two. Um, you know, the, these isolated uh, small towns were very self-sufficient, you know, because you can't drive to, say, a Home Depot or a Lowe's or anything. And, and one of them uh, specializes more in garden and, you know, uh, lawn stuff and some interior things. And ours is uh, primarily, you know, home building and uh, uh, lumber and uh, ace hardware. Why don't you give us, if if you would, a brief description of Haynes, like a geographical description of it? Haynes is located on the inside passage, where you've seen the glossy brochures of the cruise ships. And we are north of Juneau and a little bit south of Skagway. Um, and it, it looks like maybe photographs you've seen of Norway or Switzerland with a the beach. There's uh, very high mountains on all sides. It's, it's, at the, it's on a fjord, and there's two rivers that come down on either side of the peninsula and two lakes, and that's the Chilkat and the Chilkoot. And um, I'm looking out the window right now. It's cool here. It's about 55 degrees, cloudy, calm. There's the mountains in front of my house go up about four or 5,000 feet, but they're right from the beach, so that's right from sea level. And they're green along the flanks, and then there's snow on the tops. And from where I am, it's about uh, eight miles as the crow flies into Glacier Bay up and over those mountains. Mm-hmm. Well, I confirm, my, confirm for myself how idyllic it is by looking up some photographs of, you know, it's absolutely exquisite. So the closest city is Juneau, and to travel, you have to take, what, ferries and maybe small planes? Ferry, yeah. There's a ferry. The ferry takes about four and a half hours, um, but, you know, you've got to get there an hour ahead of time and all that stuff, so it's a little longer. But they're, they're nice little boats, and they have food and you can walk around and then um there's small planes that go uh, take about half an hour 45 minutes from the local airport to get down to Juneau. um the ferries right now are uh, running uh, twice a week is all uh so it's not like a multi-times a day or anything people don't zip back and forth to Juneau frequently so this is um summertime now and is this the 55 degrees, is that a little lower temperature than normal? Yeah, it's been a little cool and gray, but it, I wouldn't call it not normal. We can have summers. You know, yesterday I had the wood stove going uh, pretty much all day. Um, today I haven't lit a fire yet because the house was still warm from yesterday. But um, earlier in, in May we had days that were 80 degrees and sunny. So it really just depends. It can be warm and sunny or it can be gray, and you have to kind of figure could be anything. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I just want to tell you what drew me to the book once I started reading it is it's about community, really, which is truly, um, some listeners might realize this, 
when they listen, which is really a favorite thing for me to talk about on the radio, the value of engaging in community and engaging in local. And in the end, a lot of that is about democracy. And what I loved about reading it, too, and we're going to get right into the book, is um, is reading the passion in the words, the caring, um, the humor, the down-to-earthness of it all. And I know I'm going to be looking for a couple of your other books um, sometime <laughs> soon, and I, I think that's um, a lot of the reason why your books are really, it seems to me, beloved. So, uh, yeah, I just wanted to say that. So your book focuses on when you ran for office in the Haines Borough Assembly and the three mm-hmm. years that you were in office after you were elected. And yeah. I know that you were active, from what I read, for a long time in the, com- in the community beforehand, and that's volunteer work included. What were some of the things that you were doing and um well i've been uh, you know i was a long time library board member of public library is really important to our community it's sort of the center of the town and um i also am involved in hospice of haynes i'm a, I'm a hospice volunteer and i'm on the board of that i'm a long time volunteer at the local radio station i do a country show on fridays and i do a monthly show focusing on uh, local art and artists in the winter time in Haines and Skagway and Kluckwan, our radio station serves all three. I'm a volunteer, you know, I'm not a, a pro at it or anything, but I enjoy it. And um, uh, the local uh, Lynn Canal Community Players Group, the Women's Choir. I was on the planning commission for three years before I, I ran for assembly, so I figured I got a, a taste of how government works, and I learned things about Robert's Rules of Order or code, and I, I thought that when I ran for assembly, I would be well prepared because of that. And, and also that, um, you know, people knew me well enough that, that they wouldn't vote for me if they didn't think I'd do a good job. So I figured that was a safe bet, too. If I threw my hat in and, and they said, okay, then, then they knew what they were getting. And if they didn't, then I wasn't the best choice. I have to tell you that I never would have thought reading a chapter, which is one of the chapters in your books on Robert's Rule of Laws. Wait, what's it called? Robert's Robert's Rules of Order. You yeah, know, order. The, the motions w- w- and the seconds yeah, and all that. Would stuff. actually, yeah, would actually be interesting, but it was. So, what what calls you to public service? And and I'm talking about the, the idea of running for the uh, borough. The borough being Haynes. And you yeah, ran so it's for... like your city council or whatever. It's our mayor. The, in Alaska, uh, counties are boroughs, but we have one government that's all of us. Um, the, the borough is the city, really. We're just the same. It's the mayor and six assembly members. And then the other group we have is a school board with the school board president. But the, the assembly funds the school. Um, but that's the, the main governing group is the, the mayor and the, and the borough assembly. So and you... I did it. You know, I was like, all oh, those women. I mean, I was so excited about the 2016 election. I, I thought we were going to have our first woman president. <laughs> and you know how that went. And I just wanted to be part of that. And I'm a grandmother now. And I thought, what can I do to, you know, show my grandchildren, you know, to get involved? And grandma ran for the assembly. And I thought that was a, a good thing to do. And I had time. And I had, um, I thought the the benefit of uh, 
some some wisdom and that that would make me a, a good member of the assembly. I knew the community well, and I also didn't have, I wasn't trying to build a particular reputation or be a certain person in town. I am what I am. And so I thought I'd be good there. The election was um, towards the end, I think, of 2016. That was right. after the presidential election. Before it. Oh, it was right before it? Yeah. 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 So were there particular issues in in your town of Haines? And let me spell it just for folks who um, are not sure. H-A-I-N-E-S. Were there particular issues there for which you had concerns and felt that this was something that you wanted to tackle if you won the election? Yeah, I think always, you know, I had concerns about keeping the library funded, keeping programs for kids and seniors funded, nonprofits, um, the schools, you know, the arts, those kind of things have always been really important to me, um, and um, parks, recreation. But then also we were in the middle of a reconstruction of our harbor, and that had become a, an issue in the community, and it had been for me on the planning commission, and then um, continued forward. And the, out of the six candidates that ran, the two of us who favored a uh, referendum voting on the design of the project, not whether or not we wanted to improve the harbor, but the particular design that had been chosen. That was a that was a big election issue, and um, and the two of us that supported the referendum were elected. But um, when we tried to make that happen, that didn't that well, failed. We're going to get to the the dramatic. <laughs> yeah, we're going to get to the dramatic. <laughs> very <part>. dramatic. <laughs> so you have your book there. Can you open up to page twenty seven? Which part do you want me to read? It's these the it's right at the top. The campaign had exposed deep divisions. Okay. The campaign had exposed deep divisions over the harbor project and the proposed Constantine mine. And also, just as the national presidential campaign had, something else that was harder to define, but in a way was related to those two. I hesitate to name it because there are always exceptions, and I'm afraid that if I do, then I will be part of the problem. Yet there was something more happening here than the issues in this campaign. And that something had to do with us and them and old and new, even as it had in the national presidential campaign, the people and the government. You want to talk more about that, the us and them and the old and new? Yeah, I mean, I think Haynes is a town, it's a new town in terms of white settlement. The native Alaskan people have been here for several thousand years and, and still are very much part of the community and, and here, and, and many of those values translate into community values. But at the same time, the, the, the white sort of government that is here is new, 1900 or so. And um, the town itself evolved from a, a military town that was an army post, and then it became a, a, a fishing town and then a logging town. And as I say, we were here on the tail end of the logging days, uh, even even one of the other candidates who was young, the same age as one of my daughters, in his 30s, um, he kept hearkening back to the days when we had logging and sawmills and there weren't all these environmentalists here and artists, and it was a real working man's town and wanted things to go back to that. And that's not possible anymore for all kinds of reasons. Um, but there's still that nostalgia for those days and the feeling somehow that that's been taken away. Um, and, I, and that the, the loggers, and for lack of a better word, the hippies, uh, became now, you know, the 
artists or the newer people and the miners, because it was a proposed uh, mining project north of town that is still very much in the exploration stages and, in fact, has sort of stopped uh, doing anything this year. So that brought those divisions back again. Mm-hmm. I think we should talk about those soon. I want to, um, two pages down from where you read on 27, on page 29, you're mentioning this woman who was at the time the new deputy borough clerk. And uh-huh. uh, do you mind if I read this? No, no, go ahead. When she said how grateful she was to live in a community where election officials make sure every single vote counted, her voice cracked. This is democracy, she said. This is America. This matters. Haynes doesn't realize what we have here and how fortunate we are to have such an engaged citizenry. I love reading those things. Yeah, it's those... She, um, the clerk was from California. She's an attorney that moved here from California, and she went on. That was one of the best hires we did. She became, after the old clerk retired, she became the clerk and is still the clerk, and she's a fabulous resource and a really uh, smart, um, engaged woman. And she... This was a scene where, uh, you know, at the, when an election is done, you canvass the ballots, all the absentee ballots and the um, question ballots, all that we're reading now about mail-in ballots and those sort of things. When you mail one in, you have to wait two weeks to make sure that they come. And so the, uh, the election isn't official till all of those have been counted, even if, in the case of, of our election, the two of us, even with the number that were out, would still have won. But you go through it. You open every single envelope, and you do this out loud and in public, not the name of the person who sent it in, but who they voted for. And sitting there listening, at first I was thinking, oh, this is painful, because the other people listening just kept hearing the same names already, and it was myself and my friend Tom Morfort, who was the editor of the paper at the time. You know, and I'm thinking, why are we doing this? And... I'm thinking of the other people who didn't win the election, hoping that maybe they got more votes, but they hadn't, and it just seemed unnecessary since we knew. And that's when Aleka said, no, this is absolutely necessary. Count every vote, and that it does matter, and those things do matter. And if you just skip one of those processes, then somebody is disenfranchised, and it's wrong. My conversation with Heather Lendy, author of Of Bears and Ballots, an Alaskan adventure in small-town politics, will continue in just a couple of minutes at the top of the hour. Carol Boss here on Women's Focus, continuing my conversation with author Heather Lendy. You know, I'm looking at page 43 right now, and you said that as 2016 rolled into 2017, 2018, and 2019, The assembly chambers and politics in Haines, like those nationally, became more polarized, harsher, and much less courteous. I think you're saying that in a very gentle way, the courteous part. The reason I bring that up is you you mention that idea similarly in various places in the book, and I think this would be a good moment to talk about the contentiousness of the harbor issue. It caused a lot of bad feelings. I yes. guess I could say. Would you touch on that, that you started seeing things that was like what was happening nationally and that kind of well, it's like, equivalence? It's like people, yeah, it was so interesting to me, and it, and it is. And, um, you know, that the idea that if you said, for instance, you, you support the Harbor Project but don't like the plan because it's not going to give the fishermen what they want. They, they wanted 
80 new slips in the harbor, and in fact, it offered none. Can you explain what that is? Parking lot. Can you explain? Slips are for, you know, boats, fishing boats need um, a permanent uh, a little dock, like in a marina, and our harbor is protected by a breakwater, and the boats come in and they tie up in, in um, like, little parking spaces for boats <laughs> with the docks between, and you tie your boat up, and it has electricity or water to it, and fishermen can load and unload their nets on the docks and um uh it's it's our harbor um had a had a waiting list and so the boats were they could still fit but they were being moved around a lot they weren't in a regular slot so if somebody was out somebody could use theirs and they felt they needed more room and they did and a little more parking but we got a lot of parking and less room and it the, the end of the day i think what the point of this is is not that the haynes harbor so much but how if you as I was, you disagreed with the plan, suddenly you hated all fishermen and you didn't support fishing. I mean, my son fished for many years. My son-in-law is a fisherman and, and they have a, a, a gillnet, a salmon boat. And, you know, some of my best friends are. And I was like, what? That's not true. But it, it's sort of like everything. It's all or nothing. And we couldn't have this nuanced conversation, which I'm still convinced we would have had a better harbor if if it hadn't run like that. But the harbor supporters turned it into, you don't like us. You don't respect us. You don't support us because you think the parking lot's too big. You, you know, it, it, and it's similar to kind of the, the lines that you see being drawn nationally. Like you can't have a logical discussion even about a global pandemic without it being you're with us or against us. And that's nuts, but it's happening. Yeah, so that was a a huge thing. And some of the other contentious issues, um, there was a point where the Assembly had to select a new borough manager. It's not the mayor, but somebody who takes care of the daily business, I guess. If we hire someone to actually sort of manage the the staff, the borough staff, to do the day-to-day business of it. The mayor essentially runs the meetings and gives speeches sometimes, but isn't really in charge of what happens every day. And the other thing that I pulled out that was definitely a point of contention were were those who wanted resource development, the mining and the logging, Mm -hmm. and that was definitely in conflict with um, certainly advocates for, not certainly, but were advocates for the environment. Then came, it wasn't soon after you were elected, that was so amazing, there was one person, was that the Big Don guy, Big Don, Mm -hmm. who, who called for the recall of three of you. And that includes you, who were newly elected Mm -hmm. and did a petition that would um, bring to vote for the borough um, Mm -hmm. whether to have you recalled or not. Yeah, it was awful. And Alaska's recall law is very um, uh, liberal. And and it's happened in Haines in the past two, maybe three other times, and also in other small communities in Alaska during the same period there was one uh, in, in several other towns, and uh, currently the governor is up for recall in Alaska. They're passing around petitions about it because the law in Alaska says that if a group of citizens make a claim that if it was true would be um, reason to remove someone from office, then and they get enough signatures, it can go to the ballot, and basically then the voters decide if the if the uh, public official is guilty or not of that particular accusation. So you don't actually have to do anything. It just has to be, well, if this were true, 
then they would they shouldn't be there. So um, in our case, uh, it was that I had used my position as the obituary writer at the Chilcot Valley News to um, uh, uh, advance my own uh, financial gain by um, requesting that the new police chief keep the police blotter in the weekly paper that had been in there for 50 years, and he didn't want it in there anymore. I had to read. I had to read more to find. I mean, it was in your. It's in your book about what the. Pol- <laughs> I, mean, I make seventy-five dollars in what, obituary, and right. I mean, less than a thousand dollars a year. What the police the blotter is. So what is it? It was just, you know. Oh, the police blotter is the um, the the weekly tally of what our police department does. So, for instance, Monday uh, there was a call because it was a bear in the trash at the school. Police responded and chased the bear away. Uh, there was a call uh, on, um, you know, uh, Fort Seward because uh, someone had been shooting fireworks off and it's against the ordinance. Police responded but couldn't find the person. There was a, a call. Uh, someone thought that someone tried to break into their house. Um, uh, police responded and didn't see anything, or they did, or a domestic call or a, a drunk driving or, you know, whatever it is that the police do, there's usually, and and that's listed every week. And it just notes so that people know um, what what the police are doing. And it's fairly, for me, it's fairly reassuring that if you call them uh, because you expect any anything that's sort of suspicious, they'll, they'll come. But our new chief, I think, thought that it was, it can sometimes be kind of jokey because, or people can read it that way because it's a small town and there's not all that much happening. And especially when it starts to the police chasing the bears all around town, it, you know, you can keep reading all week about the different bear and where they were and follow the, through the police blotter. And that sometimes people will post on Facebook or something and think it's funny. But I think it's important that the public know what the police are doing. So why, again, was that um, tied in with the effort to recall you? Because um, the uh, police chief said that by asking him to keep the blotter in the paper, um, we had um, were coercing him by power of our authority on the assembly for our own personal gain. Wow. So, you know, uh, th- and that's, I guess that's kind of getting in the weeds of, of some of it. I think the... The, the big thing to me that um, it was it was really hard to be targeted like that for the first few months of office and especially as one of the one of the guys that was on the assembly with me said you know it was like every single meeting then what happened was every decision you made the people holding the recall petitions would say uh-huh well if I don't like this one then I'll get somebody else to sign it and if I don't like that one I'll get someone else to sign it and so it was like we were constantly on our heels and knew, I and mean, we knew, like if we didn't, if we hired this person for a manager, well, then they could get 10 more signatures that wanted us to hire the other person or whatever it was. If we voted for this particular tax, whoops, or if we voted against it, whoops, someone else would sign it. And so it became like that. But I think the ultimate thing that it, it did for me was um, it, uh, it, it gave me an opportunity to sort of, uh, have a have a second start after the recall because um, it failed and luckily or I don't know hopefully it it um, 
it was 60 to 40 percent of the population. So, like, we all got 100 more votes than we had the first time around. Um, and it was even. So it wasn't like people were picking personalities. The community rejected that way of governing, that way of being. They said, wait a minute, you know, this isn't quite right. This isn't how we want to be. But then we had to go on after that. And um, that, to me, was, you know, like one of those moments where you pick yourself up and get back on the horse. And then how? How do you govern when there's been people so angry and when you've been hurt so badly by it? You know, do you quit? People did. Um, Ironically, none of the people that were actually involved in the recall, but other assembly members did who were just worn out by the whole process. Um, And staff members quit, and there was a big thing that happened. And so then we... um, had to go for the next two years and work with these same people that had signed the petition that had gone after us. And how do you do that? And that's where I guess I keep falling on the side of civility and, you know, not not lashing out, but trying to get the job done in spite of uh, even other people's behavior. Let me just say that this is Women's Focus that you're in tune to. My name is Carol Boss, and I'm speaking to writer Heather Lendy, who has written a brand new book of bears and ballots, and she talks to us from her home in Haines, Alaska, with a view out of her window that you could die for, <laughs> it sounds like. <laughs> you know what I wanted to tell you, though, too, and you reminded me that this is women's focus. I think the thing that um, maybe is different about this book than other political books is that I really relied so much on my women friends in my and they're all woven through the book, the stories and my daughters, um, but and my granddaughters, but the the women, especially my friend Beth, who I dedicated the book to, we walk every single day, rain, snow, darkness, you know, blizzards, um, sunshine on on a beach along the river for an hour every morning with our dogs, and um, just having her as a soundboard to talk with made the book possible because she listened to the stories. And I could tell her things that I even might not be able to tell my husband or my other colleagues on the assembly about what I really felt about what was going on. And that helped me to um, to be better on the assembly, but just a better person, too. And, and then there was also another mentor of mine was Stephanie, who was a former mayor, who um, uh, advised me on, on a, lot of, a lot of that first year in turmoil and then ended up being... Um, appointed to the assembly when one of the people quit. And Stephanie really saved my life there. And she's a very interesting, thoughtful woman, a retired teacher and a flower farmer and a mostly Buddhist. And, and she um, helped me a lot. And, uh, and then she also went through her own um, personal illness during that time that, that played a big role in, in the story of how I... Uh, responded to community, and, and the women really were important to me. And my friend Margaret was very important, and I I hadn't always realized that um, as much in my life. And in writing this book, I, I recognized how critical those relationships were to my well-being and my sense of community. Just thinking now about the attempt to recall you, you're from a really small town, what, about 2,500 people or so, and... You know, it's one of those towns where maybe almost everybody knows everybody, and you have lots mm-hmm. and lots of friends. And even though you weren't recalled, it must have been very, very hurtful. 
Oh, it was. I mean, it was terrible because, you know, the, the really wonderful thing about democracy is that you vote in private. You know, you go into the voting booth, you pull that little curtain, you make your X, and nobody knows but you how you vote. I mean, you could tell them if you want to, but you don't have to. I can have a friend running for office, and I can smile and wave and, you know, say good luck and maybe not vote for them because I don't think they'd be very good. But I don't have to tell them that. The recall, the signatures were public, and they were posted on the borough website. And I don't think the people who signed the petition realized that. I don't think that the people passing around the petition told them, because I have since talked to some that were just horrified, that had no idea that their name would be public, and for me and everybody else to see. Um, and so that was, you know, later on when I was kind of getting over it, I looked and realized, hey, you know, of course. You do really well in an election if you get 60% of the vote and 40% not. That means 40% of the people in town didn't vote for me. It doesn't mean they're being mean to me or they don't like me or it's about me, me. You know, it's like that's how, that's how it works. And that's fine when you're running for office. When it was a recall, it, it felt way worse because I knew the names and also because they were saying that I had, you know, it's, they believed that I had done some misconduct in office. Although, again, I don't think the people passing the petition actually told them that, which is a whole other subject. And, like, why do you always – why is it in human nature that we, we tend to, in these times particularly, always believe the worst stories we hear instead of the good stories we hear? Can you open up to page – it's past 179, and what it is is the Hainesboro official ballot special election. That was for the recall. Uh-huh. And yeah. it gives the reasons for the three people who they were attempting to recall, which includes Heather, mm-hmm. the grounds for a recall, plus the response from the person they wanted to be the recallee. <laughs> That's part of your response. Can you read that? The recall isn't about the charges anyway, and you know that. This is what I wrote on the ballot. The real question is to do is do you want to allow democracy to work in Haines and let the people we elect serve out our terms, or do you want to encourage special interest groups to hijack elections through this flawed recall process? This election is about the soul of our wonderful town. Please affirm what's true and good about Haines and vote no on the recall. Yeah, I love that you said it's the soul of the town, because that's what it really was about. It was like... Like you said in other parts of the book, they were trying to undo an election, a valid election. I think, you know, that's, that's what we're up against now so much. And I think sometimes politicians do a really good job about trying to talk about issues when really, you know, it's about values. And, and then those things um, get, get mixed up and loyalties go without people really thinking about where they stand uh, in the bigger picture of the world, I think that's when we really start to get in trouble. Mm-hmm. I have to say the ta- chapters that really focused on the recall really bummed me out. I actually got depressed a couple of times because... Um, <laughs> they did me too. It was hard. It was yeah, very I'm sure sad. That, I'm sure you, you got really bummed out. It was their trickster ways of trying to fix that election that was infuriating, and that happens. You're right. We're seeing this all over the place right now, mm-hmm. but it was yeah. yeah, it was really it was really kind of outrageous. 
And it is things. But like, it didn't work. So that's the good part. Yeah, that's a good, yeah, that's I, a, and I also think, you know, by telling the story, and I did, you know, I, I thought about it because I, you know, I want women to be strong and confident and courageous. And I, I wasn't inside when this was happening. Um, you know, I was, I'm of a generation or I don't know, maybe it's just my family, but you were sort of raised to be the, the hostess and please everybody and make sure everybody's comfortable and has enough to eat and is, you know, uh, <laughs> taken care of. And, and so when I'm faced with that kind of uh, deceit and uh, bad will, Instead of getting, like, angry or fighting back, I get hurt, or I think I've done something wrong. I mean, how, how did this happen in my, on my watch that, that, you know, basically the party's ruined? And um, I, what I did learn going forward was uh, that, that I'm tougher than I thought I was and that it's okay to not please everybody all the time, which may sound like, what, you're... 60 years old and you just learned that but I felt I had to acknowledge that own weakness in me that made me um uh but it's also my strength but but you know that made me take it so personally and um I I learned uh in some ways not to but I also wanted to share that to show that even though by the end of the story I think I I'm a different person and I'm more confident and more certainly have a lot more courage than I did and I have a lot of faith in my community, too. But I had to show how much that they kind of got to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and maybe in, in hoping that uh, even if they read it, they might think, huh, maybe we shouldn't treat people this way. Mm-hmm. And maybe if other people read it, they'll realize that the things that they say and do um, to their neighbors, and especially the ones who are working for hopefully the greater good, uh, it, you know, it, it Words do matter, and, and it, does, it does bother you. You say somewhere earlier in the book that in public life there are no truths, only moments of clarity passing for answers. You want to explain that a little bit? Well, I think, um, you know, you, you make the best decision you can at each moment, and we're seeing that now. I mean, all these things that have led up to systemic racism in our country, you know, and this you know, have we been compl- have I been complicit with it? Probably. Did I do it on purpose? No. But looking at it now with new eyes, at a new time, yeah. I mean, just the way we fund, say, preschool programs, or the way, you know, different different ways that we expect um, people to participate in the process that really do um, hinder uh, a full participation from everybody. So. You know, I think, and that, that comes with that whole idea of old and new. I mean, people change, communities change, minds change, and you have to have some faith in that, and you have to be able to do that and say, oh, you know, wow, that was not good. And instead of saying, defending it, say, I'm sorry and fix it, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and too, like an answer to your question, you know, at every meeting, you, you make the best decision you can at the time, given the information you have, given all the different pressure, and that can change. I mean, government is, is flexible. It can change. Ordinances can be repealed. Different. We've seen it over and over again in, in the history of our country. It, it, you can change the rules. These are simply the rules that we all agree to live by. And if they're not working, 
or even if, you know, in some cases, the majority of the people think those should be the rules, but they're wrong, that they're, you know, immoral and not American, well, then leaders need to change those, too. I'm looking at page 121 in your book, and it talks about the Canadian company that wanted a mine. Mm-hmm. What do you call it when you put in a mine? You're putting in a mine. You're built. You're not building a mine. What? Do, what? Do you, what's well, the... you're. You're. Yeah. You're. You're digging a mine. Digging a mine. They yeah. Were, yeah. Yeah. Digging. Yeah. It's, <laughs> a, it's a big hole in the side of a mountain here. <laughs> uh, sometimes they take the top off and grind it up and chip it away. I mean, but this particular mine would be an underground. Uh, mine, mainly for a, a kind of a copper ore, I think is what they were looking at, but there would be perhaps some gold or silver. Um, and the concern was this question of acid mine drainage, which is basically when there's a, a natural product from digging something out of the ground, but if it, when it meets the water, it um, changes chemically and, and can alter the water enough to kill fish. And in the Chilkat River, there's all five species of Pacific salmon, and so this mine was very close to the river and the drainages that drain into it, and that that is really where the concern came from, and it's a big, wet, rainforesty kind of a place. And I know there was concern that, as you wrote, that there was more, that that, that company had more sway with the assembly in the mm-hmm. borough than anyone else in the room where the assembly was meeting. So if you could turn to page 21. Yeah. And... It was one of the uh, folks who wasn't affiliated with the company who was reminding, you said he was reminding us all about how the money the mine brings would be shared in the community. Mm -hmm. And to him, that fact outweighed any damage done to the Klahini, and you can tell us what that is. And maybe that's just what you were talking about, in the Chilkat River salmon. And if you can read after that what you wrote. Yeah, this is a, the issue is, is that, uh, yeah, the Klahini is another river. There's the three rivers kind of run into each other up there, and um, the Klahini and the Chilkat. And one of the people that was um, speaking about it was uh, Dakota Fred, who's from a star of a reality television show about gold mining film near the project. And, um, uh, you know, at, at one point he said, any of you business people, and he was very dramatic, and, and he boasted that his little... Uh, project would spend $160,000 a week in Haines, and, um, which is a tremendous amount of money for our town. And um, the money that Fred or a new mine may spend in our lumberyard does not motivate, motivate me the way it does Fred. I think this is what you want me to read? Actually, it says, this is where the law and my conscience differ. What we're talking about is the conflict of interest laws are, are really determined about whether you have a financial gain from a uh, a specific project. And so what I'm saying here is this is where the law and my conscience differ. I won't remove myself from this vote for potential conflict of interest. The money Fred or a new mine may spend in our lumberyard does not motivate me the way it does Fred. I know my family will make more money if a mine is built, but we could lose a different kind of wealth worth much more. No wonder some mine proponents think I'm crazy and incompetent. So it's that point for me, the different kind of wealth, which is worth much more, and that's what's a, that's totally what's thrown aside everywhere we look in this country, trying to take down our national parks. Our schools, our children, mm-hmm. our, our elders, you know, the things that are really where what matters. I mean, I, I'm an obituary writer, you know, and I think about 
uh, the difference between a resume and an obituary, you know? When all is said and done, people really care about, you know, were, were you loved? Did you love well? Did you take care mm-hmm. of, you know, your little patch of the world? Did you leave it hopefully even better for the next generation and the next generation? And, and that's, that's the legacy. You know, what? You made a bunch of money uh, on a mine that then polluted and then closed? I mean, is that is that what everybody wants when they're done to be said about them? I, I don't think so. I think it's all about caring for each other and caring for the place that we live. And maybe that's, you know, what I brought to it differently than what business people might bring to an assembly uh, or governing. But I think that voice is really important in there, the grandmother voice <laughs> or the mother voice mm-hmm. in these in these um, discussions, especially of public policy. If you just joined us, this is Women's Focus. I'm Carol Boss. I'm talking with Heather Lendy. She is the author of the brand-new book, which is called On Bears and Ballots, An Alaskan Adventure in Small Town Politics. And we're talking about her life in Haines, where she ran for the assembly and won, and what that experience was like. You were having a conversation, page 205 through, let me get to it. I love it. Thank you very much for reading my book so carefully. I, I like that. Um, you had a conversation with an assemblywoman who felt mm-hmm. taxes should fund only, quote-unquote, essential services and needs. Can you read the last paragraph, actually? It starts with, times are hard. Mm-hmm. Times are hard. I'm worried, Brenda said in the woman's room, echoing... Alaska's current conservative governor. Brenda was afraid of the consequences of continuing Alaska's entitled ways. She felt that taxes should fund only essential services and needs. This place is tiny. I didn't argue. Instead, from the other side of the stall, I reminded her that libraries are even more critical in economic downturns because they offer free access to information technology and educational material keep children safe after school or during evenings when parents are working, and provide a warm, comfortable place for community members to gather and feel welcome in a space that belongs to all of us. They also offer lots to read, I said. The reason the library deserves all the funding we can give it, I continued, is that there is the that it is the only taxpayer-funded facility department or organization that is available to every single resident, from infants to elders, seven days a week, year-round. The school isn't, the harbor isn't. She didn't respond. As we washed our hands, though, Brenda smiled and said that she couldn't disagree more. She planned to introduce the budget amendments anyway at the next meeting and continue our debate in public. I read it that way because, you know, that's what happens to me. I get all excited, and I think this is a great thing, and I've I've convinced her surely. And then she said very politely, you know, I couldn't disagree more. Yeah, it's really interesting. Yeah, and I think the part then that I I emphasized, too, is how there was no shouting. And as far as I detected, no animosity. Yeah, she Um, smiled at you. We weren't screaming at each other. That was my life on the assembly, but that's... Our public life, too, and people should be able to say that without being, you know, I thought I made a really good argument. She didn't. Oh, well. You know, we're both elected. We're both representing. Um, you know, we have to see how it works. We did ultimately get the 
the funding for the library, though, um, which is also another reason though, why I'm glad that I didn't demonize Brenda over her viewpoint, you know? Mm-hmm. So we have a little bit of time left. Oh, you included a passage. I, You know, it was really kind of nice, and I, I, I don't know if you'd want to read it. It's on um, 231, and it's um, you were on a trip, and you brought along a memoir from somebody who I, I'm not familiar with. Marty Murray's uh, memoir, to, uh, it's got uh, Two in the Far North. It's a beautiful book. And, and talk about women. I mean, let, just let me give a plug for Two in the Far North. It's, it's old now. Marty Murray died oh, a while ago. She was a, a great uh, conservationist, environmentalist, particularly protecting the North. And she traveled, believe it or not, in the days without cell phones, in the days without satellite radios, with an infant rafting down these rivers in Alaska, and her husband, who was a, 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 um, a biologist. But it, you've got to read her story, because it blends uh, parenthood, adventure, and the North. But what she says at the, at the end of her book, which um, is more eloquent than anything I can say, is that my prayer is that Alaska will not lose the heart-nourishing friendliness of her youth, that her people will always care for one another, her towns remain friendly and not completely ruled by the dollar, and that her great wild places will remain great and wild and free, where wolf and caribou, wolverine and grizzly bear, and all the Arctic blossoms may live in the delicate balance which supported them long before impetuous man appeared in the north. And she said that that Alaska's value is, is that it's a gift to the harassed world. Mm, and, nice. um, and I think that's true of all wilderness areas, um, all places that offer us some respite. And, you know, we're seeing that now with the, with the pandemic. You know, the places that are safest are the ones that are outside, that are clean and where the air is fresh and we're away from people. Um, those are the places that we can still go to, and there is some solace there. On page 241, and going what you were just talking about, what you just read, it's midway down, it's in the middle of a paragraph, it says, these days the joy I find in waking up. Sure, you want me to read that? Yeah. Yeah, this was following an accident where I ended up uh, not being able, I was hit by a truck and I I couldn't uh, walk or do anything for almost a, a year, so... These days, the joys I find in waking up in this wonderful world is plenty. My good fortune, luck, grace, it slays me. It is a new day, and I am in it, as Mary Oliver would say. That's why I have been humming my own show tune. These little town blues are (laughs) melting away. I want to be a part of it. I like to sing a lot. Substituting Chill Cat, Chill Cat for New York, New York. And, um... You know, that's yeah, it's why that's, that's my life. Yeah. That's really great. And what you say at the end of that is politicians and business leaders, priests and preschool teachers, you and me too, had better do all in our power to make sure that nature remains for as long as rivers flow to the sea. Our lives depend on it. It's nice. Mm-hmm. You wrote about democracy. On what page? Oh, 267. Uh-huh. From the beginning, as activist Parker J. Palmer writes. Right. Democracy has been a nonstop experiment in the strengths and weaknesses of the system. Our form of government is just that, a guideline, the rules we collectively agree to live by. 
It's the people involved in it who make it work or not. Native American civil rights activist Elizabeth Parotrovich said so as much when she told the Alaska legislature in 1945 that racial segregation may be the law, but it was not right, and convinced them to change it. So much depends on people of goodwill, and they are everywhere. Mm-hmm. One thing I should ask you is, even though you mentioned them a little bit before, is I get the ballots and the um, what? <laughs> I get the ballots and the title. The title. I'll give the title. Mm-hmm. I'll give the title again of Bears and Ballots, mm-hmm. an Alaskan Alaskan adventure in small town politics. Ballots voting. What about the bears? <laughs> well, I think the bears are uh, a symbol, both, um, metaphorical. Yeah. And to a certain extent, a lot of the work on the assembly did revolve around things like bear-proof trash cans and keeping bears and tourists apart. But um, it uh, it just had a nice alliteration to it, and I love the cover of the books. Yeah, it's an adorable cover. So before we end, I, I, I want to ask you how Haynes, how Alaska, particularly Haynes, is doing in this pandemic as it continues to We're very fortunate because we're isolated and we're very small. And um, Alaska shut down very early, especially as part of southeast Alaska, because Seattle was one of the first hot spots. And to leave Haines, we go to Juneau, and then it's Seattle is the next stop. You can't fly directly from Juneau to anywhere except for Anchorage or Seattle, and we tend to go south if we're going to the lower 48. And so um, we took it very seriously. And then uh, it's... Now we're, we're kind of we're opening up. Things are happening differently. In Haines itself, I believe we've had a total of six cases, but no one has actually gotten sick as far as I know. They were asymptomatic cases that were tested uh, for people coming back from the summer or from traveling, and then they just stayed home for two weeks and are back out in the world. So we're fortunate that way. But we've shut down. You know, I can't visit my friends in assisted living. We're wearing masks. Um, we have a a significant native uh, uh, Alaskan population, which are more vulnerable. And so, um, for instance, the, the Clinket village of Kukwan, they're not allowing anybody in or out that doesn't live there right now. And they haven't had any cases in, in Kukwan. But um, I think we're being pretty good and pretty careful. But now the numbers statewide are ticking up, and we had our first day, which might not sound like a lot for New Mexico, but our first day over 100 cases. And that, that has caused some alarm. And, of course, schools opening is another one that everyone's concerned about. You mean my you're... grandchildren aren't coming into my house yet, in yeah. other words. We're seeing our kids outside in small groups, but so far even family members haven't come in yet. That's hard. Yeah, it is hard. And it's, and it's, and it's you know, we're going into a long winter, which will make it harder to be outside with everybody. So we're... But, of course, you know, we're, we're very concerned for the whole country and the whole world and just want everybody to stay safe until we can get a, some kind of a vaccine. So what comes next for you? I noticed that you have a lot of readings, and yeah. they're all going to be virtual, I take it. Mm-hmm. Yep, I'm doing, um, I have all kinds of different events. They're on my website. People can go see some of them because they're, you know, they're Zoom. Uh, I'll be speaking with... Um, different people uh, via different venues in different parts of the country, even though I won't be there. So one more (laughs) time, I'm going to say the book is Of Bears and Ballots, 
an Alaskan adventure in small-town politics. And I'm talking with Heather Lendy, L-E-N-D-E, who is the writer of that book, and others as well. It's been great talking to you. I love reading the book, and I was really looking forward to chatting with you. Well, thank you very much, and uh, it was a joy speaking with you as well. This is Carol Boss. My last set of guests are coming right up. Are you hanging in there with me? I sure hope so. There are any number of issues that should be of concern to New Mexicans that are not necessarily well covered by the media and sometimes not even barely covered. Today on Women's Focus, I have two guests who will talk to and inform us about a major one in particular, and that is WIP, the Waste Isolation Pilot Project and the Department of Energy's expansion plans. Joining me today is Joni Ahrens. She's the executive director of Concerned Citizens for Nuclear Safety and has been for years, as well as Laura Wachempino. She's a member of the Multicultural Alliance and the Laguna Acoma Coalition for a Safe Environment. This is, I, I feel, an important opportunity for us to hear what's going on and to be able to have um, our voices heard, and in fact, without leaving our homes. I welcome you, Laura and Joni. I, I know you must be in your homes now. I'm so glad that you can join me today. So, thank you, Carol. Yes, thank you. So we're speaking to Laura. Where are you today? I'm at home in the Pueblo of Acoma. And Joni, you're up north, right? Yes, in Santa Fe. Santa Fe. Okay, good. So I thought we could start out by you giving us a very brief background on WIP in general. I'm guessing many people are familiar with it, but if not, a, a, a general background. And then we'll talk about the latest in regards to WIP right now and what's happening and why you, you have come to talk to us today. So who would like to do that background? Do you want me to do that, Laura? Yes, please. Okay. WIP is the Waste Isolation pilot plant. It's important to know that it's a pilot plant, and it was developed to prove that radioactive, toxic, and hazardous waste from the development, research development, and uh, manufacturing of nuclear weapons could be isolated from the environment for 10,000 years. So WIP is located in the salt beds of southeastern New Mexico, 2,150 feet below the surface of the earth. And it is um, more than halfway full with wastes that have been shipped from Idaho National Laboratory, the Rocky Flats facility that was located near Denver from the Savannah River site in South Carolina, the Oak Ridge National Laboratory. Um, WIP opened March 26, 1999, and it's supposed to close in 2024 and begin a 10-year period where they will close the facility. In February, 2014, there were two accidents, two releases from WIP, where first there was a fire on February 5th of where oily rags caught fire in the underground, and there was a fire. Then on February 14th, 
2014, one or more drums that were shipped from Los Alamos National Laboratory exploded in the underground and contaminated the tunnels and the shaft in the underground. Uh, 22 workers were exposed, and the plume went nearly 150 miles to the northeast. So as a result, the facility was closed for three years, and it's back up to operating now. Okay, that's a good little history of it, bringing it up to the present. So let me go to Laura now and ask what is going on there now that is of um, big concern to many individuals who, who keep up with what's going on at WIP. And there are quite a few of you. I think one of the big concerns that I have is the DOE's construction of a new shaft that is not needed. And it's a large size uh, that almost, there's only one reason that it could have been constructed, and that would be to expand the WIP side and its mission. Explain in terms of um, WIP what a new shaft is. What is a shaft? In this case, it would be a utility shaft that would be used for ventilation. At least that's what the Department of Energy is telling us. Right, and I would like to add that the Department of Energy is spending millions of dollars on a new filter building that will be done in one year. And that will provide over 100% of the air that's needed by the workers who are now working in personal protective equipment and with ventilation in the contaminated parts of the, of the WIP site, in the underground WIP site. And so there's really, um, DOE has already fixed the problem of ventilation with the uh, new filter building. And as I said, it will come online in one year. So what about in some of the material, recent material that I read, that the new whip shaft, while not being a ventilation shaft, is a utility shift, a shaft, and that's designed to bring more waste and new waste to an expanded whip. Is that accurate as far as um, which, what either or both of you know? Well, I'm reading a press release from August 21st, 2019, that says the Department of Energy, Carlsbad Field Office, and Nuclear Waste Partnership announced the award of a key utility shaft construction contract at WIP. So you're correct. It's just what is the definition of a utility shaft? <clears throat> Probably it has it can be used for many things besides ventilation. Well, it sounds like from what we're talking about thus far that um, I think you're sort of both saying loud and clear that the ventilation, a ventilation shaft is not needed. So if that's the case and you're not sure what they're going to do with the utility shift, shaft, I don't know why I'm saying shift, you don't know what they're going to be doing with the utility shaft, um, can you talk about the concerns that a number of people have? 
and what those concerns are about. And I'm a, can I assume that you and others are thinking that this new shaft, the utility shaft, will not be good, will not be safe for New Mexicans? I would venture that the shaft would allow an expansion of WIP. And as Joni mentioned, WIP has a limited lifespan that would end in 2024. It has a limited mission that allows it to uh, store transuranic waste. Explain transuranic waste for those who are not familiar with what that is. Joni? Oh, transuranic waste means that it's beyond uranium in the periodic table. And so the next element is plutonium. So all of this waste is plutonium contaminated waste and it needs to be isolated from the environment. Um, because a millionth of a gram of plutonium in your lungs will cause cancer. And the main pathway for plutonium to get into your body is inhalation and ingestion. So it's very, it's, some people say it's the most dangerous um, element on the planet. So I was reading that the New Mexico Environment Department gave WIP uh, a temporary authorization so they can start digging the shaft without a permit. Is that of concern to you? That's extremely concerning because it's allowing the Department of Energy to go ahead with the utility shaft construction, and it leaves the public without a means to, without a voice. And in the normal permitting procedure, this would be noticed to the public and provide the public an opportunity to comment on this. And the public's voice should be taken into account when a final decision is made. So people like myself think this is an end run about around the permitting process. And uh, by the time this construction is noticed to the public, uh, there's not much we can do anymore. It will have been built. So if the... Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, that it's just that we won't. There's nothing we can do about it at that point. Right, and and the environment department um, issued the temporary authorization, even though they knew that the new filter building was coming online in a year. So they wouldn't need the the, the, the new shaft for ventilation because they have the new one coming on in a new building. Exactly. And then they waited seven weeks for to release a draft permit for public comment. So in those seven weeks, the Department of Energy began drilling the new shaft. So they've already prejudiced the process. They've already, um, what is the other word for prejudice? Um, tainted? Tainted the process, too. Tainted? They tainted the process, yeah. And it's not, 
that's not okay because it's going to be an it's going to be a very time-consuming project for the public to oppose this, and we need help right now in in others opposing it as well. And so, there's opportunities on the CCNS website at nuclearactive.org. There's a sample action alert, a sample public comment that you can use in Word that you can change according to what your concerns are, as well as a timeline of WIP for people that are new to this issue in New Mexico um, to to learn more about this process and also the promises that the Department of Energy has made to the people of New Mexico that WIP would close in 2024. And right now they're saying that WIP will close. For a while they were saying WIP would close in 2050. Then they said 2080. Now they're saying there's no end date. And they plan to bring surplus plutonium from Savannah River site, high-level waste from the Hanford site, along with other waste from other sites around the country. So we need to get active. Um, dust off your stop whip t-shirts and signs and get involved again. Thank you. And I'm sure there are many people who have not been involved before. So it sounds like that they're saying it's a ventilation shift. It's really clear to most of you that makes no sense because there's going to be a new building with ventilation. And so that is the reason to be rather sure, would you say, that they have plans of bringing in uh, new waste. So the New Mexico Environment Department, as you stated, has given WIP that authorization, a temporary authorization, so they can start digging, and it sounds like without a permit. Um, what would be the reason they would do that? Are permits are permits normally required for something like this? I believe a permit modification should be required for this type of construction. So it's of concern that the Environment Department in New Mexico gave this temporary authorization. I am concerned because the New Mexico Environment Department gave that temporary authorization without public, an opportunity for public input and comment. Right, right, which should be the procedure, typically. Mm -hmm. okay. Exactly, because the hazardous waste laws require public review and comment um, when major when changes are happening at the facility. And right now, the comments are due on the the new shaft on August 11th to the Environment Department. This is Women's Focus that you're in tune to. My name is Carol Boss, and my guests this afternoon are Joni Ahrens. She's the Executive Director of Concerned Citizens for Nuclear Safety, and also Laura Wachampino, who is a member of the Multicultural Alliance and the Laguna Acoma Coalition. So there's a couple of things I want to ask you, which is, for listeners, for the listeners' sake, if listeners wanted to find out more about this, of what's happening and the, and the, um, the issuance of a temporary permit and what it's for 
and just find out the facts, um, where can you send them where they can easily find that information? And then I would like one of you to talk about what uh, you would like listeners to do, where they can go to do it and make it easy. So, and, and that if they're, they're listening now, they can grab um, pen and paper and write down a website for information and where to go to write. It doesn't have to be a long note, does it? Is it going to be an email or a, a hard copy letter? That's preferable. Well, let me take the first stab at that. Um, I got my information from the uh, Concerned Citizens for Nuclear Safety website. And I think it's very helpful because it gives a little bit of background about what's happening Good. at the waste isolation pilot plant. And it even provides some sample comments. Joni, can you give the website for Concerned Citizens for Nuclear Safety? Yes, it's nuclearactive.org. Okay, easy. Nuclearactive.org. So, folks, are you writing that down so you have a chance to speak up about this, not requiring you to go outdoors? There's no, it's not requiring you to go to any protests or asking you to go to. It's these letters that are really important. So, nuclearactive.org. At nuclearactive.org, there's an action alert that you can share with your friends and family. There's a timeline if you want to understand more about WIP and its and its agreements with um, the state of New Mexico. And there's a de- there's a sample public comment letter that you in Word that you can cut and paste and put it in your email and send it, modify it and send it. Or there's an actual Word letter that you can fill out and you can put it pop it in the mail, whichever your preference is. But we need to show opposition to this proposed shaft because it's not needed, and it facilitates a forever whip. It does not um, – it, it allows DOE to ignore the 2024 closure date. Yeah, well, that's kind of huge. Yes, it is, and it's going to be a big fight when the hazardous waste permit is available for public comment and review, review and comment, and then a public hearing. And so the groups that will be taking that forward um, need financial support to be able to put together the best case possible to oppose forever whip. Right, as opposed to a whip that had an end in sight, supposedly, right? Exactly. So. Exactly. I think what I'm going to do, I'm just saying what I'm going to do, because I don't trust the mail right now. And there's a deadline on getting these, um, um, your voices heard through email or letter. And I think you said the deadline is August 11? Yes. So that's not that far away. So either way will work. And if you want to do a letter, it's probably best to do it really soon. It seems like online at this moment might be um, safer to make sure it gets to where it's supposed to be. Well, thank both of I thank both of you and all the many others who have been working on these kind of issues for so many years. It's really 
um, pretty unbelievable and you're still at it and it doesn't go away. Just like the danger of the um, waste doesn't go away. The need to work on keeping it being the positive where they want it. Well, anyway, it doesn't go away. It hasn't, but thank you for your work. And I thank you. So, so thanks so much, Joni Ahrens. And thank you, Laura Wachampino for joining me today. Thank you, Carol. Yes, it was a pleasure. That's it for Women's Focus this week. I'm Carol Boss. Thanks for listening. You can catch these interviews and more on KUNM's two-week archive at KUNM.org. Coming right up is Raices.